Hello, and welcome back to the Aurelius Podcast. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder and CEO here at Aurelius, as well as your host for the show. This time, we had a chat with Hannah Nagel. She's the lead UX researcher at SAP Customer Experience. We had a chance to hear a good deal about her role in a large enterprise doing user research. Hannah shared some very practical tips and personal experiences on just how to establish, scale, and succeed doing user research in a large organization. Hannah and I spoke pretty in-depth about how to set research up for success at any organization. We talked about how truly understanding your business and its stakeholders will help you better sell, conduct, and act on findings and insights from user research. This is something nearly everyone I know struggles with regardless of how mature their design or research practice is at their company, so I know you're going to get some great insights from this episode. Those topics led to us really honing in on what it means to do user research, and even understanding why we do it. To that end, we kept coming back to having confidence in the decisions you, your team, and company are making, all based on what you learn from real people who are your customers. There's obviously many components to doing that well, but it all starts with regularly conducting research and having a central place where you can find and share what you learned. As some of you know, we built our very own platform that helps UX designers, researchers, marketers, and product teams store all their user research data in one place to create a central repository or database of user research knowledge. Hannah and I spoke about this very topic, and Aurelius, our company, came up as a solution for doing just that. If you're looking to create a user research repository, archive, or library of all your key insights and data, you should check us out at Aurelius. Head over to our website for a 14-day free trial and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. That's AureliusLab.com, www.aureliuslab.com. All right, and with that, let's hear all about user research from Hannah Nagel. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, episode 31 with Hannah Nagel. She is the lead UX researcher at SAP Customer Experience. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thanks, I. We're pretty excited to have you. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation for sure. Um, and just to kind of kick it off for folks listening, if they if they haven't heard of you or are not familiar with your work, maybe you could start by giving a little bit of background, what you're doing, what you care about, what you're interested in, uh, just to give folks some background to our conversation. Sure. So I currently lead UX research at SAP Customer Experience. So I'm embedded in the product design team um, and I support the research efforts for all five lines of business. Um, coming from a design background before that, working um, as a UX designer in fintech. But before that, I was actually working with startups um, in the Middle East, so doing more kind of a sustainable development approach. So I think my I bring a lot of that kind of systems thinking to my approach to UX. Um, but I think my my kind of wavy entrance into the world of design is is not uncommon in the world of UX. I think there's a lot of folks coming in from a wide range of backgrounds. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes it so strong is that it's so intersectional. That's very true. Um, that's very, very true. And, and I haven't, I guess, been involved in a whole lot of the 
up and comers, I guess, as of late, except, uh, you know, we do, I, I do speak at a local uh, education group, uh, a school here in town called Prime. But yeah, I mean, it is fascinating, right? Like how it brings a bunch of different people from backgrounds that in many cases have nothing to do even with technology. Not that UX is predominantly or only exclusive to technology, but I mean, let's face it, a lot of the work that we do as UX people are tend to be in technology. And it does really attract folks from everywhere. In fact, one of our recent uh, episodes, Jorge Arango was a trained architect before he started designing software. You know, it's, uh, it is interesting for sure. Yeah, and I've actually met a couple architects who are in UX now. I think the concept of, you know, that lofty idea of like, what is design and designing experiences, and there's such a wide range of I guess industries or educations that lend themselves to thinking about how do you construct a thing for people, mm -hmm. whether that's physical spaces or, you know, coming from library sciences, helping people find things, wayfinding, um, things like marketing, making making things for people. And that might be moving, you know, going into civic tech after that. How do you make that experience work for people or staying in where I am right now, which is like digital e-commerce design? Um, there's such a wide range of practices that would inform that. And I think you know, the more the merrier. I think the more the more intersectional it is, the stronger it can be. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. In fact, um, the more, as the word you're using, intersectional it can be, I actually think the more successful design can be in organizations and more pervasive it can be, the greater impact it can have. Because then there's all these different perspectives that acknowledge the value that design can bring to many other areas of yeah, and I've actually been thinking about that a lot lately, about what makes a strong team. Because mm -hmm. I know that there have been some conversations around, you know, hiring is hard and how do you bring on new members of the team that will kind of complement the the strengths that are already there. Um, and I've seen some kind of two different approaches, or I guess a trend in moving away from, you know, hiring people that you might want to, you know, have a beer with or, or go on a long plane ride with, um, and instead bringing on people that have something that you don't have. So trying to kind of build that whole complete team by identifying different strengths and different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And that is, it's, it's hard to do. Um, but I think going out of the way to find people from, I guess going a bit to diversity now, but different, different educational backgrounds, different lived experiences, and just coming from different industries and bringing that all together to make the most, you know, complete team that you can. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, cool. So let's uh, let's take a step back. Lead UX researcher at SAP Customer Experience. We hear yeah. title. We hear titles all the time. There is a lot of folks <laughs> here who are doing research. Maybe even have a lead UX researcher title. But just tell us about the work that you do there. What does that mean to be the lead UX researcher there? At I guess in my work context, it means because there are not so many researchers. Um, and there's such a wide range of products. Um, so in my case, it really means helping people to determine what they need to figure out about the product in order to make it better mm -hmm. um, and create those roadmaps. And sometimes it means doing the research myself, but at other times it means facilitating an environment where they can ask the right questions and learn how to get some of those answers themselves. I think scaling up in enterprise or big orgs or government systems that can be really large and maybe look really organized from the outside, but are not necessarily as organized from the inside. Um, that part of the work of doing research there is figuring out how to connect people and how to teach them to fish, so to speak. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, in, in my context, I think leading is partly a, an education role, I would say as well. Yeah, awesome. And actually something you said there, Hannah, reminded me of uh, the one episode we had with Lindsay Redinger over at Envision. And that's actually one of the things that she's focused most on in sort of leading the research group there. And I think she even put it, we even talked about it as like the teach a person to fish sort of thing. So what she's doing there. Oh, yeah, she did say that. Yeah. Yeah. So she's very much focused on trying to enable and empower other teams and people to do the research uh, themselves. and, And then that frees her up to do some more of this foundational or generative type research that provides more even strategic direction and then everybody's doing research and then research is impacting again sort of all layers of the company yeah i listened to that one i really love that episode a lot of what Lindsay said resonated with me as well um and i think there's a lot of similarities in our experience also around kind of evangelizing the, the impact of research and showing how it can impact uh the deliverables that people care about for themselves. So, you know, as, as researchers, we can be particularly excited about the, the process of researching. Um, and I think part of the education or evangelizing of research is thinking about how do our kind of internal consumers, how do product owners and other designers, et cetera, what are they trying to achieve and how will research get them closer to that goal? Um, and once you can kind of pivot your work or align your work with what outcome they want, then people start to get more excited. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they want to do it themselves because they see that it will, for example, save their team time on code rework, or it will save them time on retesting and having to redo their designs. And once you can get to that point, you can start really scaling up your research practice, even if you are still the only researcher. I know there's a lot of teams of one out there. Um, if you can take that approach, you can really start getting other people to join in and increase the pace and scale of the research insight. Yeah. I love that. Um, the question I have then, Hannah, is how do you do that? <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> and I agree. And I suspect a lot of people listening are probably nodding their heads. How do you do that? Do you have any stories you can share on, on how we go about doing that? Yeah. The way that I started kind of thinking about this was looking at where it had been successful in other areas. And I try to, like we talked a bit about how UX is so intersectional. So kind of widening that net and thinking about what are a range of scenarios in which people were able to bring insights into spaces and increase mm-hmm. that. And there's the, um, there's the stories of Obama getting the 10 letters a day. They call them the 10 lads. And that story really resonated with me because it's, you know, the, the highest office in the land, basically doing daily user research, where his staff would come in and they would read 10, you know, randomly, I don't know if they're randomly selected letters or if they had been selected in order to show the breadth of experiences, um, but they, they, were, they would show a wide range. And so they would read these 10 letters to him on a daily basis. And that concept of like keeping insights updated in people's mind really resonated with me. And from there, we started looking at where, how, why is that successful? So one thing is that it's a breadth of experiences. Mm. Um, so, so the range of the breadth of experiences. The second reason that that makes it successful is the regularity of inserting it into your routine. Um, and the third is that it builds on something that you're already doing. So Obama presumably was already in his office at that time of day when someone would come in and read the 10 lads to him. Um, and so when you're looking at your own space, and trying to replicate this kind of model, look at where people 
people already are. Do you have, you know, weekly Monday meetings where everyone touches base? Do you have daily scrum meetings? Um, are people just kind of naturally gathering around your kind of design, you know, post-its or whatever that you have up around your desk? And try and find that kind of intervention space that you can build on. So does that mean, you know, maybe printing out your personas and having them up there? Um, does that mean including personas in newsletters and maybe sending kind of updates um, that way to keep them fresh in people's minds? So you don't need to create these totally new experiences for people that are not, you know, maybe already in their workflow. Just look for spaces that are already working and then see what you can insert into there to kind of scale up research, keep it fresh in people's mind, keep them engaged and show them the value on their own workflow. I love that. I think that's really, really brilliant. It, it, a lot of what I'm taking away from what you're saying too is the frequency of exposure. We've, you know, we've, we've, we've seen and heard and read people talk about that, but not necessarily a great tactic other than we'll get people to go along with research uh, with you. And I think that that's kind of hard. It's, it's actually a pretty high barrier to entry, especially when a lot of the people we tend to work with are like, VP of marketing, director of product, whoever it is, and they're just never going to make the time to go with you on research. And I love that idea of, well, then just give it to them when they're not asking. And, and more importantly, piggyback existing behavior. The first thing that came to mind as you were talking about that and sort of meeting someone where they are or, uh, you know, in the space or like, you know, theoretical mental space is the BJ Fogg uh, behavior model, right? So like for any, um, uh, any habit to occur, there has to be like a behavior and action uh, and a trigger, right? I think that's yes, right. yeah, yeah. Keep me honest if I get yeah. if I screwed that up, <laughs> but but that's what it, that's like immediately what came to mind for me is like okay, so you're in your example uh, with Obama, which you had in one of the articles you wrote about this, uh, if I recall yeah. correctly. It was you know so presumably he, again he was like maybe in his office doing some sort of like administrative type work at the time. Uh, you know, like the action was reading the letters, the trigger was that time of day, that, that space. And it's like, well, then it just becomes routine. That becomes uh, a habit. Right. It just becomes a habit. And this concept of looking for triggers, um, something else that we could pull a lot from, you know, sustainable development or large scale, you know, organizational change, organizational behavior. How do you create large scale changes where there are a wide range of people, a wide range of, you know, maybe hierarchies, physical spaces and digital spaces. Um, and the, I think the concept of trigger there is really important because you don't want to, you don't want to necessarily give new triggers. That's not always successful when you're looking at something very large. If you have a group of five or 10, or if you're all in, you know, literally in the same physical office, that might be feasible. But when you have teams that are maybe located in different offices or across the globe, it becomes much more challenging. Mm -hmm. And so looking for that one trigger that you can build on, I think is one of the, the, the keys. So I, I like to think about it as kind of doing user research on user research. <laughs> yeah. And looking at, yeah, how, how are people working right now and what are their triggers? And then how can you design, you're basically designing a service for them, designing a user research service that aligns with how they work. And that's something that they can take on as their own, yeah. um, which is another kind of hinge from uh, sustainable development. Like the, you'll have more success with your social change if you, if people feel empowered to make changes on their own. So if they can adopt it as their own and really take ownership of that practice, then you'll have much more success in both scaling it um, and also getting it to, to last basically. That's yeah. That's really, really important point to bring up there too. It's something I, 
a talk I've been giving recently really sort of centers around this idea of understand the people you work with and for just as much yeah. as the people you try to make things for. Um, and you'll be a lot more successful in like selling your ideas or, or pushing your totally agenda. Agenda is not the right word, but you, know, you follow what I mean, I'm sure. Um, that's, yeah. Yeah. So particularly, I think this is particularly timely too, because we're talking a lot about how a lot of the old ways, uh, quote unquote, of research are broken. Like people don't want to just sit and read a PowerPoint deck necessarily. There's still a lot of organizations that work that way. And there's still a lot of people who expect, you know, the insights deck or, you know, whatever, whatever you call it. Uh, but by and large, there's a big movement of people talking about how, well, that's not right. And our rigorous processes and, and approaches it's turning people yeah. off, right? Which I think I'm reading between the lines of kind of what you're saying. Um, I guess really the point I'm making with this is a lot of people would talk about this, this movement and this practice as research ops. Uh, yeah. And I'm curious, uh, is that A, true for you? And then B, what is research ops? Because there's, there's a lot of people talking about it now. And um, I definitely try to be as involved in the community as I can be with regard to that. But I would love to hear your take on what that is. Okay, I'm kind of nervous to answer this question, like wade into the deep waters of what is research ops. Um, so I think that from the first part of your question around what is, what is, what is broken about the old way of doing visa research or where is it trending towards? Mm -hmm. I think, and I'm still very new in this field, I think, but working with some of my colleagues who have been doing this for, you know, 15 years, 20 years, I've noticed a trend in their work where they may still be, sometimes be more comfortable with delivering these, these more formalized reports. Um, and with, with some reluctance, sometimes they'll make decks. Um, and with deep regret, will they ever make kind of like a blooper reel or one of those like shorter videos? Um, and I tend to word the videos more because I think that one of the challenges of, of research is getting to the inspire action side of it. So you kind of you're on this you know spectrum or scale from gathering the insights and then inspiring action. And I I I think as researchers we would be tasked you know, what, what the impact of our work or the, the output of our work is maybe a better term. So the activity is gathering insights, but the output is like, what does someone do with that? So if they have to read a 40 page report, it might have beautiful MLA style notations, but if they don't do something with it, then your role as a researcher didn't, you know, you didn't advocate for the user because no one could use what you produce. So I know the blooper reels are, you know, less glamorous and maybe don't have all of the all of the academic insights that we might want to bring into it. And I'll sometimes still include it because some folks do want to take that deep dive, but I kind of like to separate my, my report that I'm generating into what, what should you do with the outcome of this thing? And if you want to go up the chain a bit, here's, you know, here's why the thing and here's how the thing, here's when the thing, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. The, the focusing on outcomes and inspiring action in my personal opinion, is the most important thing that you just said in all of that. Because, well, not that you need me to, but I completely agree. Uh, and I'll explain, I'll explain why. I think, <laughs> maybe you won't say it, I certainly will. I've worked with some of those people who've been <laughs> in the field a really long time. And, and I think there's a lot of navel-gazing in the field, which is to say, look at all this rigor and, uh, and, and science and 
you know, procedure we have around research. And like that has so been, that has been the focus is look at how tight the research has been. But th the reality of it is nobody gives a shit about your research. What they care about yeah. is how can I be confident that we're doing the right things? And that's yeah. the role we should be playing for them. So I, I, again, personally, uh, I, I hope that our chat will inspire others to take action to change this. Ah, you see what I did there? Um, <laughs> but I, I hope others will also begin to focus more on the outcome. Here's the recommendations. Here's what the findings were. And then work backwards when necessary. Because most of the time, people don't actually care how the sausage is made. Most of the time, they don't actually care about the supporting data behind it. But you got to have yeah. that. It's just not where you start when you, when you want to inspire that action. Right. right. Not where you start. You don't want to lead with how perfectly you wrote this screener questionnaire because really just bogging down everything else you're trying to get them to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is great. Uh, is Go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, I loved what you said about um, giving them confidence in doing the right thing. Um, I think that that is, that really distills like what our roles on the teams are, um, is giving them confidence to make the right product decisions or the right business decisions because it's also a balance between what's right for the user and what's right for the business, obviously. Um, and there's such a wide range of roles that we're supposed to support and they all have their own schedules and they're all reporting to, you know, different people. Um, and if we can just give them that confidence to take the next step in their, you know, kind of product decision journey, then, then we've done our part, I think. Then that's a huge success. I, yep. hundred percent agree. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because I, I believe that our role as researchers for particularly in-house teams, but also as a consultant or a service provider, we have become the Google for people in business. And, and what I mean with that analogy is they just want to type a question in the box and get an answer back that helps inform what actions they should take. Yeah. That's really what yeah. they want to happen. So my colleague gave me this great example, which I have loved and have been using lately, um, as how user researchers are the the ask a librarian of your organization, which I guess would be you know the old school way of asking Google. Mm -hmm. um, but when you you know if you're in that kind of academic setting and you need something, anything really, you're kind of you're kind of trained your onboarding process to go to the library and ask them for assistance in a wide range of things. Mm -hmm. And I feel like for use, for researchers to kind of increase their impact, they can position themselves as the librarians of users. So whether that's giving the answer you know, directly or steering them to where they might find or, or validate something, then that helps us to give people confidence that they're on the right path, whether or not we're doing the actual work for them or we're just training them up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I would also add to that, um, because that work will go on with or without us. And so, you know, us in the UX world and researchers, you know, we've been fighting for a long time to say we want a seat at the table. And I believe very strongly now, particularly that the reason why some people or some organizations have not given design or research, whatever a seat at the table is because they haven't shown the value to the business. And I, and I believe it's because of this very topic that you and I are discussing is where you need, you know, that work's going to go on regardless of whether or not they have mm -hmm. research insights. Like they're yeah. going to make those business. They're going to make the thing. Exactly. That's going to happen. So if they do that and they have any relative success out of it without it, then they, they are unaware of the value of 
what we could do and how it can enrich that, right? But as soon as that happens, then all of a sudden, well, it's 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 metaphorical, right? But like that seat at the table has occurred and all of a sudden they want to ask more questions to inform more things they do that normally they wouldn't have even commissioned a research study around maybe yeah. two years ago. Yeah, and I think you raised two kind of important points to suss out there. One is that people are going to do the thing anyway. And that Jared Spool has a great article, non-designer is going to design. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really resonated with me. And I kind of, you know, stole that a bit and was like, well, non, non-researchers are going to research also. Like people have questions and everyone, I know, you know, not everyone is a designer, quote unquote, wearing a turtleneck and like designer glasses, <laughs> but everyone is making product decisions mm-hmm. um, and those will impact the design. So how can we as researchers enable people to make the best decisions about that product, whether or not they're doing like kosher research, because they're going to try and answer those questions anyway. And I, I do see some some gatekeeping, I would call it, um, where people have concerns about colleagues, you know, writing the, the wrong survey or doing an interview, quote unquote, wrong. I hear this term wrong a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the worst thing that happens if they do it wrong is they do it again a little bit better. Like mm-hmm. they will simply keep doing it until they get confidence and do it in a, a way that might elicit a better response. So yes, the first 99 times there might be some bias. We might have to, you know, maybe not submit those results to, you know, a conference paper, but it, it will give them enough insights to have a little bit more confidence in their own decisions. And then that's how we can keep scaling it up because the more that they engage with the practice, the more that they're showing the value to themselves and their colleagues. Yes. Yes. Um, because, yeah, nature abhors a vacuum. <laughs> so in the absence of what, yes. we, what we might call or what you may have heard of, you know, as quote unquote, right insights or right research, some form of uh, insight or information will affect those decisions. It will happen. Yes. So whether that's only someone's personal experience that they then project <laughs> to, we've all seen this happen, yeah. right? Uh, they then project onto a wider audience, assuming that that's then true for other people. Or it's just, hey, that was kind of poor research design and I'm not happy with it, but you know, you're going to use it anyway. And, and everything in between, those those things will occur and they will influence your product decisions, design decisions business strategy decisions yeah so yeah, yeah and I've, I've been seeing a lot of personas lately i don't know why but i've been seeing a lot of folks making personas that are based on their own knowledge which is you know, not to disparage their experience in the field you know certainly if you've worked um in the field for a while then you have a very firm grasp of x y and z but the goal of a persona is partly that exposure to users. So that practice of going out and talking to real people and then consolidating that information into a quick reference point. Mm-hmm. So you kind of hear this back and forth sometimes in people saying, you know, personas aren't helpful. I don't know why we're bothering with it. And I'm like, well, if you just, if you closed yourself in a room and you just jotted down some stuff that you thought, you kind of miss that whole process that makes it important, that exposure part of it. Yes. I'm actually really glad you brought this up, Hannah, because this is something that's been rolling around in my head. I think this is actually the first time I've talked to anybody about it. So humor me. I'd love to get your reaction to this. Okay. We're talking about exposure a lot, right? That's come up a couple, a couple mm-hmm. of times, even very early on in our conversation. So uh, Jared Spool also, he wrote an article that talked about, 
more successful UX and research is, is getting people research exposure time. And, and while I agree with him, I, I think it's a little bit too high of a barrier for people. Um, then there's also this idea, kind of like what you just talked about of, I don't feel like I got the ROI or the value out of that exercise. So in this case, you were talking about personas. In many mm -hmm. cases, people are talking about research in general. Well, why do we need research for this? It's, it's expensive. It's arduous. It's full of process, yada, yada, yada. The thing I've been thinking about recently is that, you know, research or insert your thing X is expensive because you haven't built the exposure to then understand the value of that. And what I mean is, yes, a single research study that you might do once every three years, that's expensive. That mm -hmm. is expensive. And you probably don't feel the actual ROI of that because what you really want is enough exposure to your customers or users, whatever you call them, to build this intuition about them. That's yeah. where the value comes in. Uh, and it's not in these, you know, sort of one-off commission studies or we made a persona and, oh, dang it, it didn't answer all the questions we wanted. <laughs> like, well, because it was never going to answer all the questions that you wanted to answer. Yeah, I think there's, we can also break, break down that a bit. I think asking the right questions or helping people to ask the right questions or knowing which ones will be most impactful is also part of our goals as researchers. And then looking at what makes something expensive, I think there's there's a couple different kinds of costs in terms of research. So you mentioned a great example of doing, you know, some really large scale, you know, annual or biannual uh, study. And that of course is very expensive, um, but also has, really long lasting insights that you can build deep products from for a while. Then we have kind of the cost of if you're if you're trying to get an ROI in terms of sales, so that are you trying to, you know, validate a certain feature, are you looking at some usability that might either hold back or push forward your sales? Then you have some other features that you're looking at to build that are maybe just for, for marketing purposes. I know in, in really large organizations Honestly, sometimes we build things that we don't really intend to sell. We just built it to show you that we could build it. Mm -hmm. So do we need research for it? Mm, maybe, but there's already been some market research that told us that this is you know, interesting for some sort of Forrester, Gartner report, whatever. Um, and then we have the last kind of cost that I think is the most impactful for, for large teams, and that's the cost of, of rework in general. And then that becomes an actual dollar amount that you can balance off of, well, okay, this study or this tool, you know, might cost $10,000, but how much are you paying your scrum team right now? Scrum teams cost, you know, a million, $2 million for an entire year. So that's, I'm really bad at math and I'm going to try, but $10,000 is only a very small portion of what you're paying your scrum team. So just do this thing, validate that you're on the right direction, because if you're wrong, that's going to cost you $100,000 to redo. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. I, I think that's all the right way of thinking about this. And it reminds me also of something a recent guest we had on, Jim Callback, uh, where he was talking about, you know, um, I'm trying to recall the quote now. He, he was uh, talking about the idea of just, We'll understand business better to understand like which hill to die on, like which which battles to fight. I love. Oh yeah, he had a really good phrase there. He, he, he just he's yeah he said something like uh, to the effect of I would encourage more people to go out and understand marketing and other parts of the business. And and yeah. 
why that was relevant to what you had just said was because uh you were you were you were saying like well we built this thing and it wasn't because it needed to be some huge success that everybody who's our customers adopted it but rather it was to make some other statement that's better for some other means and in, in area of the business and if we don't understand that yeah. then all we're going to do is want to start a fight with somebody about how they're doing it as you said wrong um and they're idiots and they don't get it and they, and they don't value my work and all of a sudden you know we get very dramatic as designers and things go off the deep end but the reality of it is it's not actually true maybe all they needed was like something directional from you um and actually then you you had a huge hand in the success of that and it didn't need what you thought it needed yeah i loved when jim was saying that i remember i was listening to it on the subway and i was making like praise hands emojis on the metro um <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a lot of value to thinking about what is what is important for other teams, which I guess is just user empathy. You know, when we're talking about what is who are our users, we're supposed to design things for our users and have empathy for them. And the people who consume our research are our users as well. And yeah. what is the value for them and what they're doing? And is that, a, is that a hill we need to die on? And I am definitely all for, you know, falling on your sword. I think there's a lot of times when sticking to your guns is really important in research, but you do, like Jim said, and like you mentioned, you really have to think about what's the value to the business as well, because if it's something that you intend on selling to a consumer and that the revenue is really important, then for POs, for, for marketing, for the CEO, for the designers, everyone there is involved in getting the right thing out the door. It has to work. It has to meet the metrics that you're, that you've decided are important, but there are some other things that, you know, save your sword. Yeah, completely. We need to go there. Yeah. Completely. And I mean, if I were to summarize all of that too, it's just like, don't be a rigid asshole. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously though, think about that, right? Like, so we were talking about this too, and this whole deep focus on the craft that designers and researchers and product people have. And that is so important. But being able to see the forest for the trees is just as important as to, as to suggest that, well, you built this thing and you didn't even do usability testing on it before it went out. It's like, yeah, well, maybe we didn't need to. And I'm not suggesting that that's the majority case, but what I am suggesting is that us as these people doing that work, the better we can understand that and when to know, yeah, yeah, it's fine. We shouldn't worry about that and like go home and write angry tweets about it. The better for us and our yeah. businesses. Yeah, because I think that the value in, I think the value in design overall as a practice is making things better for people if i can be like the most general statement possible <laughs> <laughs> so it's not you know you don't need you don't need design companies i mean sap i'm going to call it my own company i know people have used some sap software before and our old our older software is really hard to use and there were no designers there and sap was still making billions of dollars every year with software that i honestly struggle with mm -hmm. so you know do we need designers do we need ux uh, no, you can still sell stuff with it, but is it a hundred thousand times better now that we, you know, prioritize designer organization? Yes, of course. And when we're trying to think about what the value is for the people that we're trying to, you know, kind of insert or like wiggle into their processes, it's what do, what do they value? So I guess going back to like systems thinking, what do they value? What kind of output do they want? And then where can we kind of latch on there? and and show how our work will impact their work so we're, we're all on the same team instead of saying 
either you're doing it wrong or you missed a step and you can't continue. Like we're not, you know, the gatekeepers of the sacred user knowledge. We're the facilitators of insights and confidence. And I don't know, I feel like I'm like really selling us right now. <laughs> you know, it's a tagline for us, but like we're, we're like trying to prop people up instead of blocking them from moving to the next step. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I'm, I'm over here nodding my head vigorously for a reason <laughs> because, because it's all super important and brilliant points that you're making on this. And again, it goes back to that thing where, yes, you, we believe that what we do is critical, hugely valuable to the companies and organizations we work for. But if you don't understand that other person who is the consumer, the output of our work, and what's important to them, why should they ever listen to you? If you haven't done that work to understand like the value you can be giving to them, why should they care? To your point, SAP was making billions of dollars. Yeah. I don't care what you have to say because the only thing that, <laughs> I mean, right, like dig it. They, they, the thing that was important to them was making successful products that earn money for them and their shareholders or whatever, right? Like, mm -hmm. I can take a pretty damn good guess at what SAP uh, had, in, had in mind when they were making stuff. <laughs> generally speaking. But if you can say, well, tell me about like how you determine that success. And then you understand that a little bit more. And all of a sudden you go, well, you know what? I can get you some answers to questions that you have about doing that, that might make that even more successful for you. Would you like me to help you with that? <laughs> if somebody says no, they're probably yeah, crazy. No. <laughs> yeah. And I think even when people do say no, it's, you know, you, you can leave them aside and find that person that will say yes. Mm -hmm. Even if it's, you know, not the PO, maybe it's the developers on their team that are like, yeah, we would like to spend less time on code. Then find that person, get them involved. I actually feel like developers are a big untapped resource for scaling research because they, they don't often get to see people use the products that they work so hard to build. Um, they may not even see the whole product, you know, together, especially places like SAP, where we have really large scale framework solutions and, and developers are working on, you know, little, little components and modules. So they don't often see the whole product together and getting a chance to kind of step out of that workflow and see, you know, a real human interacting with something that they built. That is, that's fun for people and it, it brings unusual insights. And I think once you can expose them to that, um, then they bring that back to the team and it kind of filters back up to this maybe sometimes reluctant PO and shows really shows the value there. Yeah. You know what? The, the fact that you brought up developers is uh, it's something that's been very important to me too. And for those who, who do listen to our podcast and follow the track, which I'm looking at Joseph uh, right now, that we need to pick back up on was our Insider Alias track. We talked a great deal about that, uh, getting developers to care more about research. I could, I, I'm actually pretty convinced that that is one of the major complete to, to use your words, completely untapped keys to success. Because if you think about it, and I think I said this in the podcast that we recorded uh, in that track, I think I said to Joseph, like, if you think about the ratio of technologists, engineers, developers, whatever, of those people, as opposed to like design, it's like three to one. Way bigger. Yeah, it's like easily three to one and maybe more in some cases. Guess what? They're making the <laughs> thing that gets into the hands of other people using it. Mm -hmm. So if we can if we can show them and convince them and get them sort of, you know, screaming from the mountaintop about the same things we are. 
I'm certain <laughs> that will have a big effect in the companies that we work in. Yeah, and I think that the entry level to UX research doesn't have to be complicated. You know, the the more intricate, higher level stuff is, of course, requires a lot of training and experience. But I think that entry level of just being like, what is what is a human? <laughs> what happens when they interact with stuff? How do you think about their environment? How do you, what does it really mean, this concept of empathy for users? How does that translate into, you know, functionality or appearance? That kind of entry-level discussion is is engaging for people and something that they can all relate to. You know, something as simple as like turning on a light when you come into a room, that's user experience and what, what makes that less usable for you. Okay, we have a conversation about that. And now how does that translate to the software, which I know is much more complicated than the light switch example, but, you know, let's make that jump together. And then they they really start to understand. So when you're talking in a, in a user interview and you're you're trying to ask them questions about you know, tell me about a time when X worked well for you. Tell me about a time when it didn't. So I walk through that with the with the developers and say, I know that right now we're not we're not in the quantitative section yet. You know, it might seem like these are really soft insights, but what we're trying to do is understand the the room. The light switch is in the room. So right now we're trying to understand the whole context of how the room works for them before they start to interact with the actual thing you've designed, because that's going to impact it. So we're, we're kind of painting that picture for them and then kind of narrowing it down until we get to, I, I do find that a lot of folks get more excited about the quant, but I try and ease in through the qual part first because those insights really shape how we understand people relating to each other and relating to the thing that we've designed for them. Yeah, interesting. I, I would actually love to hear any more detail around that for you, it, just in terms of people seem to be more interested in the quant and you sort of ease them into the qual. Is there anything more you can share on that? Well, I want to, I want to move people away from thinking that numbers are the end all and be all, Mm -hmm. especially now that we can collect, you know, more and more data. Um, And it's important to contextualize that data and think about what, ask the right questions, I guess is always coming back to ask the right questions. So uh, you know, I, I'm, I guess, more of a, of a quali- sorry, of a, yeah, of a qualitative researcher. But when I'm trying to get, think about what will engage folks who are more on the, you know, they like numbers, they like a good graph. So when I'm, you know, give, giving the folks that they want, giving them that graph, but before we get to the numbers, thinking about what what is important to understand about how people are living their workday, for example. And that's a lot of that is, is qualitative. We can quantify some of it. But I think the real the real nuggets that really create empathy are there's, there's not a number on it. It might just be you know highlights from the blooper reel. Um, it might be personas that are, I guess these end these these they're soft and deliverables, but they're really included in, in painting a picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's a really great point. I mean, because the way yeah, the way I've always talked about it too is. Quant can give you a certain level of like confidence behind a more squishy qualitative statement, right? Because it's very easy for me to come up to you and say, you know, Hannah, did you know that most people prefer bananas over oranges? And like, maybe you'll believe me, but if you're skeptical as, uh, you know, most people tend to be with a statement that they hear sort of, you know, uninitiated, Mm -hmm. if I can, if I can then give you some quant to, to back that up or suggest like, there's more solid ground as to why I just made that statement. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, okay, well tell me more, right? Yeah, or I, to give a real life example, 
I found that, um, I forget the actual numbers for this, but insert number that I don't remember mm-hmm. here. The folks who were using this particular element of the software were fine, you know, had very low usability for them. So if I had just given that number, it might have seemed like our software is just, you know, far too complicated. Um, and we had to redesign the whole thing. But through, you know, the very, the quality user interviews, we were finding that our personas were actually, they weren't right. Uh, we had made proto personas and hadn't really updated them. And when we started to update them, we realized that the folks had a different uh, educational background and a different experience. And so they were approaching our software from a really different mindset. Their, their mental model of it was was completely different than what we had designed for. And that's something that, you, you know, you could send out a, a survey, but doing, creating a questionnaire to reach enough people and designing it the right way to eliminate all of the bias. And at that point, it's easier to just go out and start talking to people and just really get those, those, those quotes or those little video bites that you can bring back to the team to, to make it come alive. You know, you don't necessarily need a hundred respondents or a thousand respondents to that survey. You really just need a couple to bring it alive. Yeah, completely. I mean, saying something like four out of five people had this, experienced this, or said this is the same as 80% or whatever, right? Like, yeah, it's just, it's just another form of communicating again, that confidence. That's, that's the way I've always talked about this is that, is that research, um, and strategy work is just giving people confidence that, that they're doing the right things that are both good for us and the people we serve our customers. So, yeah, which is like a very basic, you know, we all, we all want that. And it's, it's, I think it's easy to give to people in this context because a lot of, a lot of the questions that we get asked are, are not that complicated sometimes. Um, the the short term ones, you know, mm-hmm. what what do people want? What do people need in the setting? There's things that we can answer quickly, and so I think for when one of the things I really like to focus on is for some of those, you know, the shorter term or kind of lower hanging fruit. I like to get other folks to do it themselves once we've established that they're asking the right question, and then they get more motivated to ask those longer term, more complex questions that we can start doing together. Yeah, that's great. I was actually going to ask you, I mean, the situation you just described sounds like the team working on that product or software, whatever it was, had a a certain set of expectations actually based on perhaps prior research. You had personas and the work you did was very much trying to show them how that changed. I mean, that sounds like a, a sizable challenge, especially if you've been working and operating off a, a set of information <laughs> for a while that you had confidence in. Uh, how, how did you go about that? So in that example, it actually wasn't research that I did. I had joined the team as as the first researcher. And so people had been, like you mentioned, people are going to uh, you know answer their question anyway. So they knew that they needed personas and they put together what they, what they could, you know? And then we built on that. So once we had already built the product, it meant going back to what we had accumulated so far and thinking about what needed to be updated. But I think once you've you've already moved, so you have the initial hurdle, which is, do we even need research? So even if someone's put together, quote unquote, wrong research, in this case, these proto personas that weren't accurate, it's fine, you know? Mm They were engaged. They put together what they had. We're already past that first hurdle. So the next hurdle is much smaller, which is why should we update these personas? Why should we go out and do user interviews? Why should we trust the results of usability testing? 
And then you have the next hurdle, which is how can we convince the wider range of teams now to undo the work they've done and redo the work? I think that's the next hard hurdle. Yeah. Trying to show the value between, okay, your usability test said, you know, X and Y, maybe it's quantitative or qualitative or both, ideally both. But then saying, because of this, it is now worth your time. Because now we're talking about real money. We're talking about value before that code rework time is actual money that you pay scrum team. So you have this, you have to move from the deck report to, I don't know, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars more that it takes to redo that feature, redo that flow. And I think that's the next jump that can be challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, awesome. It's uh and, and one of the things you said there too kind of makes me think of going back to this thing of like understanding what's important to them gives mm -hmm. you the ability to say, well, are, are, are we being successful? Like by your definition, because what we talked about is X, Y, and Z. And I kind of feel like the product isn't really doing that. So maybe, ah, I have an idea. We can do new research and update the personas and help you get the success by your own definition. You get where I'm going with this is that that hurdle then becomes a, a lot easier because if you've actually empathized with them, the people you work with and for, then you can say, oh, well, I, I think I know how to help you get be successful. It's not just about me yeah. saying, oh, well, you're wrong and your research sucked. So that's why we need to do it. But rather, I know what I can do to help you be more successful. Yeah. And I love that approach because I think it has two really successful elements of starting from user empathy and making it about the other person's goals. Um, and also working backwards from the outcome. So you've defined what success means to them, and then you're just working backwards in steps from how you are going to help them deliver that. Yes. And that's been a big problem that I think that we've had for many, many years. And I say we, as again, the UX and research community, this has changed quite a bit because businesses have seen the actual ROI outcome, albeit difficult to measure. But mm -hmm. we, still, we still see this pushback where it's like, well, why should I listen to you? And um, by and large, we're relatively ill-equipped for that conversation because we're just like, well, you're an idiot. Why wouldn't you focus on the people, <laughs> right? Like we want to just take that combative stance um, and that's never going to win an argument. It will never mm -hmm. win an argument. But if we can understand what somebody else on the other side of the table is trying to do at least as well as they do, then we can say, look, I, I totally get what you're on about and what I'm suggesting uh, helps you and what you're trying to do. So let's talk about that. All of a sudden, there's a conversation to be had there and it's a little bit more receptive. Yeah, and that's still something that I struggle with when I'm thinking about the range of complexity in some of these products or systems and what, how do you prioritize or create a hierarchy in terms of you know new features that you know need to be developed for, for marketing or sales reasons, you know, for pure business reasons. But you might have a backlog, probably do have a backlog of either usability issues or research that you know needs to happen. And at a certain point, the conversation does become a, a numbers conversation, you know, in terms of what will deliver in sales, where do you focus? And I think in terms of working on, you know, enterprise software, legacy software, or, or even government processes. So these really large scale, really complex, older systems that you need to, to update and make better. That's something that I, I honestly, I haven't found really solid writing or I, I haven't found someone who solved that problem really well that I can draw from. So if anyone's, if anyone's out there, I'm waiting for that medium post about how you make 
decisions where it's a trade-off between future money or future financial opportunity, or I guess looking back, it would be what money might you lose if you don't fix existing issues. Mm. That is definitely fascinating. I don't think I've read that article either. <laughs> uh, but it's it's particularly curious for me because it's something I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about. Like, I, I, th- I think I spend a lot more time thinking about the business as a designer and researcher person than maybe like the like your average bear if that makes sense (laughs) uh and so it's something i've thought a lot about but but your your particular dilemma i I would have to believe the reason why you haven't read that article is because it's kind of like asking how do we predict the future right like you can give some projections and say well we think that if we don't solve these problems like here's the bleeding (laughs) here's how much we're going to bleed and then like this is how long it takes until we lose the limb kind of deal but it's like how can you know that that's accurate plus i mean but but arguably i will actually argue a counterpoint um if that's possible to what i'm saying (laughs) where any projection you have on like as you would have put it new money is also a guess so it's kind of a toss-up right like that's where i like to come to this idea of like what is our goal with this product or service or whatever experience we're making for us and then what is what is the thing or things that the people we're making it for are trying to achieve? And let's only mm-hmm. make the best decisions in the places where those overlap. Because that's where we can have the highest degree of confidence. I go back to that, yeah. that thing of confidence. I think it's that overlap point where if I can partially answer my own question, I think the, t- the two challenges, and especially these really large spaces, are that some of that, I would say not information, but some of that data lives in the marketing team mm-hmm. and it tends to be siloed. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of data points that the marketing team has that translating that into like knowledge that we can act on is I I've, I have not yet succeeded in doing it. That some team has it somewhere, but I don't really know how to get that information and translate it into product mm. decisions for my team. Okay. Um, and it, so I guess that's like looking forward. And then if I'm looking backwards, thinking about what's, you know, what's the cost of not addressing some of these usability or UX backlog issues, you kind of need a fully fleshed out foundation of research to draw upon. Um, So saying like, what do we know about X, Y, and Z? And that requires either a breadth of researchers, um, a a wide range of researchers to tackle some of those questions and make sure it's recorded using some sort of research management tool, um, or really getting together on a regular basis to make sure that people are sharing that information. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess, silos are really the enemy here in some of this decision making yeah that's interesting and and i was actually going to ask you is there something it seemed to me like you had something in the back of your mind like hmm i feel like this group of people maybe marketing had that data that i wish i had to to you know um foster and care for and allow it to grow up and and become its own thing (laughs) uh i didn't know if there was anything there like a detail or specifics that you wanted to share no i think i i think i was kind of asking more questions in my head as, as i was answering it where like marketing teams definitely have a really a wealth of information, but it doesn't it doesn't filter out to product teams, at least in really big orgs. I don't think it filters out to product teams as much as I would love it to. And I don't really know how to bridge that gap. You know, for example, NPS is something that the the marketing teams run. I know there's a, a range of you know feelings out there about NPS. It's like a hotbed topic, but 
you know, someone somewhere on the board deciding we're doing NPS. So mm-hmm. for me, the conversation is done. We're, we're doing NPS for the next 20 years. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and I think NPS can really be roped into a wider range of initiatives. It's an opportunity to create like a really tight, closed feedback loop where you actually engage with end users. But because it's done by marketing, it's something that's kind of missed for us. It's an opportunity. It's a missed opportunity where Info- data points are there, some information has been gathered. I don't really know how it's what they do with it until I get like a you know quarterly deck mm-hmm. with some like some graphs. But there's definitely a lot more there around talking to customers, making customers feel engaged and getting you know specific feedback where again, it's it's too siloed right now to really turn that that information into knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, I'd like to. Make make more friends. I guess I just need to make more friends. Is what I need. <laughs> yeah, make more friends. I guess and get all of that in a place where everybody's kind of playing with the same information. It's um, it's something we've come across for sure with Aurelius because interestingly, so I mean our our product is definitely built for people like us, right? Mm-hmm. But what we find is that marketers are very interested in what we do because they're trying to operate with the same kind of information that we are. They might be not be gathering it the same way. They they certainly wouldn't be calling it user research in many cases, uh, but they are trying to get the same information and they are trying to have, as you would have put it, the same outputs with that information. And yeah. so get, us getting a sandbox where we all play together uh, actually makes the sandcastle a lot cooler. <laughs> and the one thing yeah, that you I think said- Yeah, there's, there's a lot there. Yeah. In terms of people, everyone's gathering information and maybe they may be asking different questions, but if there's, a way for us to show the output of that i think we would all make better decisions mm-hmm. because we we all need different types of confidence and we're all asking different kinds of questions so how can how can we even as researchers get confidence in what we're doing as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well and i'll actually share i'll share an insight myself having worked with a good number of like marketing teams oftentimes what they're trying to do is get answers to the same sort of things that we are so for a good example is just like what what value do people see in this product or service that we're designing? That's actually a really important question for us to answer as user researchers, product researchers, mm-hmm. whatever, right? Marketers are salivating to get that answer. The difference comes in with what we do with the answer to that question. That's it. Like yeah. we both want the answer, but what a marketer hears out of that and what their action, or as again, you would put output to that, it's just simply different than what we hear and how we take action on it. But guess what? If we are both taking actions, albeit different, off of the same set of information, we automatically have a better chance of alignment in both how we talk about our products, how we deliver them, and how we build them. Yeah, I feel like what we're really getting down to here is how can we curate and share insights in a way that people have confidence making a wide range of decisions about products? Yes. I think the answer is, use something like Aurelius to like manage all of those insights and make sure that people are on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I appreciate your nod to it there. That's definitely been our passion and impetus as to why we even built what we built for sure. Cause we, we mm-hmm. recognize that. So, I mean, just a little bit of background, Joseph and I did a lot of this work together at a consultancy um, before we ever started Aurelius. And the thing that we realized was that our job was not about building the thing. Like that's the easy part. The hard part is helping people feel confident that they're building the right things. That's, that's just so much harder. And yeah, the only way you do that is, as you said, like 
make sure everybody's operating off of the same information and that they understand how they can act on it in different ways. That's how the most successful products in, in companies get built. So yeah, it's definitely a passion of ours and that's uh, it's awesome conversation. Yeah, I like that we keep coming back to this this phrase confidence because I feel like confident people are able to take action. If you are not confident, then you're not able to go in, in any direction. So that's really what everything that we want to do as researchers is really boiling down to that confidence. Totally. You know, and something that just popped in my head as you said that, Hannah, I, I talked about Google earlier, like we should be the Google for people. And and I actually, mm-hmm. I actually almost mean that quite literally. So you think about this, if you go to Google and the auto suggest is, you know, you start typing in how to, or how do I. Which is my favorite game, by the way, the like autocomplete. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so think about what happens there. There's a reason those autocomplete examples are there is because mm-hmm. everybody is looking for an answer to a question. Now, why are they doing that? They want to get data that, that gives them confidence to take mm-hmm. action. That's, that is the way we operate as human beings. And that's why Google makes a buttload of money, <laughs> right? I guess, and that's, so when you bring up, when you said that, as we keep coming back to this confidence thing and like, that's what we're doing. And it just made me think of that reference back to Google. I mean, that's, that's literally like what we're talking about. We're just, we're trying to give people that data that helps them feel confident that maybe between one or two decisions or, or types of decisions they have. Yep. Okay. That's the one I should go with then. Yeah. I think I do want to draw a division between giving data and giving recommendations, I guess. So I think one of the struggles with some of the reports is just doing a data dump and being like, here's a bunch of numbers. And people are like, I still don't know what to do though. So uh, there's a fine line to walk between making people feel like they are informed, but don't have, don't have to read. Can I say that? Like don't have to read through the whole thing. And they have, they have one or two nuggets, I guess, that they can hold on to. Yeah, you can say that and you should. I'm glad that you did because, <laughs> no, I mean, because that's just it. Again, this is this whole thing of if you only focus on the craft and you're like, I did my research perfectly, flawlessly. Well, who gives a shit? If nobody can make any decision from it because they don't know how to decipher what you shared, right? Now, obviously, that's an extreme example. But if you go, well, uh, most people have low usability in this thing and then you walk away. So, right? Like, what's the reason they had that for? And what, based on your expert experience, because you are the expert, you saw those people have low usability. What should we do to make sure that thing doesn't happen? Yeah, something I like to do in my reports is to do, you know, really short summary that's literally one sentence, and then another one sentence that's a recommendation, and then say next steps. So the next best steps might be more research but it also might be the design recommendations things to change so you can if you want you can just skip to the very end section to be like what do we do now Mm -hmm. yeah yeah awesome awesome you know the one quote too i just want to share because i think it was very appropriate when you were talking about mps and it's just like even how we work and operate against certain information somebody made a decision and that's the way we're going to do it a quote popped (laughs) in my head i actually think it was a churchill quote and i might be butchering it but he said something like democracy is the worst form of government except for all others. And it's like, <laughs> it's like whether, you know, if MPS sucks or if the way you're using marketing or research data sucks, like that's fine. But to your point, like let's all get on board and just make the best of it because we're going to do it anyway. Uh, let's, let's do our best to, uh, to influence it in the most positive way possible. Yeah. And I think it also goes back to something we were talking about, like intervention points, like 
NPS may or may not be a good or bad thing, but it's already going down. So now that that system is already there, at what point can we intervene to to align it with something that we want, which is like more exposure to users, mm-hmm. more regular insights or feedback about product? How can we what can we leverage out of this current structure or workflow? What teams can we pull in? What new initiatives can we build off of it? Um, because you know it is what it is. But there's definitely a space for us to get in there and really show the value for our own team. Definitely. And you can't do that effectively if you don't understand what's valuable about NPS for that other person. They're, the reasons they yeah. chose that, you know, if you understand that as well as they do, and then just at that moment where you can strike when the iron's hot, you go, ah, well, that answer you were trying to get from NPS, it doesn't seem like that's getting it for you. But you know what? I have an idea. Then, yes, then, you have to get in the game before you can swerve them. Yes, that was not a good sports reference. I don't, I just mix them all together, but <laughs> before it. you can move them over to where you want them to be, <laughs> we're, we're keeping it very good. Um, <laughs> Hannah, you've shared a whole lot, and this has been a really awesome conversation. But I have to be respectful of your time, and I'm sure we can talk for uh, several more hours about this stuff. But given that, um, you know, if folks listening to this had uh, temporary amnesia, forgot everything we talked about. <laughs> and there was, you know, there was one thing you really wanted them to take away. What do you think that would be? I think the main takeaways would be giving people confidence, you know, our role of giving people confidence and making the right decisions. And that if we want to scale user research, then we need to be looking at those intervention spaces. Where can we insert ourselves into ways that people are already working um, and kind of pivot them a bit and build on that a bit in order to get them more engaged with the practice and incorporating research insights into their design or development workflows. Yeah, that's awesome. Piggyback what they're already doing. Uh, yeah. Show them how we how the work that we're doing and the insights we have can enrich that. Yeah. That's great. Awesome. Um, well, Hannah, where can folks... Uh, find out a little bit more about you and maybe get in touch if they want to continue the conversation. Oh, you can find me on Twitter at miss underscore Hanny. And you can come hang out with me at design ops. I'll be speaking at design ops in November 7th to 9th in New York. Yeah. Um, come hang out. It's lots of fun. Yeah. Well, that was the other thing I was going <laughs> to ask too. Is there anything that you'd like to share with folks before we, before we leave that maybe we didn't talk about? I was going to bring up design ops summit if you did not. So I'm glad that you did. <laughs> I think I think if there's anything else I'd leave with folks, it's I think diversity in user research is also something that I would like to see people growing and thinking about how we make such a, a wide range of products now and how much those really shape and impact everyone's lives. And I think the the group of people who are making these products can be quite small and and quite exclusive. And I want to take more of a, a FUBU approach to products. I want it to be like for us, by us. So the more that we can pull in a wider range of folks, then I think the better our products will be. And I think the, the kinder our products will be, if that's not too too lofty. Yeah. No, it's not at all. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm getting a great kick out of this because I'm wondering if it's a FUBU reference to way back. Do you remember the clothing line, FUBU? Yeah, old school FUBU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. Which I missed, by the way. Those were good times. <laughs> <laughs> so here for it. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> FUBU Research. Somebody's going to write that article. Yeah. That's my new tagline. 
I love it. All right, uh, Hannah, again, this has been awesome. And, uh, and I very much appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. I, I know that folks are going to get a lot out of this. Um, so thank you again for joining us. Thanks so much, Zach. All right, everybody, we will see you next time. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. And also, you can fill out our podcast survey where you can let us know if someone awesome that we should have on the show and even tell us about the things you would want to hear about, topics that are interesting for you. You can check that out in the show notes or on our website. Thanks for listening to the Aurelius Podcast, the show where we talk with brilliant minds about user research, UX design, and building great products that meet the needs of real people and what you learned about them. Aurelius is a user research and insights tool for design and product teams. Aurelius helps you add, tag, organize, search, and share all of your user research notes and customer feedback insights to figure out what you learned faster and easier than ever before so you can make awesome designs, products, and features. Check us out for a free trial at AureliusLab.com. That is A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Or find us on Twitter at AureliusLab. We'll see you next time.